we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. We're in the book of 2 Samuel this morning. We go to chapter 23, 2 Samuel, if you'll turn there with me, chapter number 23. If you don't have a Bible, you may find one in front of you. If you just look at the chair in front of you, along the rack, there are some uh, pew Bibles there, and so you may want to avail yourself of one of those. We've been in a study of the life of David, and we've come nearly to the end of his life. And we're in the 23rd chapter. Now, those of you who've been with us through this study understand we're, uh, and when I give you the verse, you're going to know we have temporarily bypassed one portion of this 23rd chapter uh, because I thought on the occasion of Father's Day, uh, it would be good for us to look at this list that is found in verse number eight through the end of the 23rd chapter. It's a list of David's mighty men. And since it's Father's Day and we have all these mighty men here, I thought it'd be good if we encouraged them, don't you? And uh, so we'll look at this and then we'll come back, uh, God willing, next week and look at uh, verses 1 through 7, which the Bible tells us are the last words of David. But this morning, we'll look at this subject of David's mighty men. And we'll read these verses, if you'll read along with me there, beginning in verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adano the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave into the sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop. There was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time under the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. 
These things did these three mighty men. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief among the three. And he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them and had the name among three. Was he not most honorable of three? Therefore he was their captain. Howbeit he attained not unto the first three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among three mighty men. He was more honorable than the thirty, but he attained not to the first three. And David set him over his guard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah, the Herodite. Elika, the Herodite. Helaz, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikish, the Tekoite. Abiezer, the Anathathite, Mabunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahohite, Maharai, the Netophathite, Heleb, the son of Baana, the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai, out of Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah, the Pyrethanite, Hidai, of the brooks of Geash, Abilbon, the Abrathite, Asmaveth, the Barhumite, Eliaba, the Shaalbanite, of the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sherar, the Hararite, Eliphelet, the son of Ahazbi, the son of the Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezri, the Carmelite, Paari, the Arbite, Igel, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelech, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Berathite, armor-bearer to Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, an Ithrite, Garab, an Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, thirty and seven in all. Well, that's a challenging list of names to read, is it not? I looked at that like, uh, you know, one that's looking at an obstacle course in front of him. I hope I did it justice. As you read those names, you think, well, what does this have to do with me on Father's Day in 2023, seated here in this church? I don't know these people. Well, if you go to Washington, D.C., and you go to the Vietnam War Memorial, you'll find the names of over 58,000 men and women who died in combat. Men who fought and died for the sake of their country and for the sake of freedom. And because they fought and died, along with the others who did survive, and many who did, of course, Uh, many who are in our church who are in that combat, because of their 
valiant sacrifice, we continue to enjoy freedoms today. And others across the world are free. Well, in the work of David's kingdom, there was many conflicts, as you read with this passage of Scripture with me. David, of course, is the greatest king in the nation of Israel. God made a covenant with David that through David, he would have a, there would one day be a son, a descendant of David, who would occupy the throne of David forever. That promised one, that king, is Jesus. The blind man called out and he said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He was recognizing that Jesus was the rightful king, the Messiah. Of course, we know that Jesus suffered and bled and died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And then he ascended into heaven, the presence of the Father, and he is coming again. And when he comes, he will occupy the throne of David, and he will establish his rule on this earth. He is our king. He is the ultimate fulfillment of David's prophecy. David is a historical figure, but he's also for us a prophetical figure because his kingdom speaks of the greater kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that in David's kingdom there was conflict. We also know that in Christ's kingdom there is conflict. There are forces of evil that are working to oppose the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And just as David had mighty men, the Lord Jesus Christ also has mighty men. My question for you today is do you desire to be among them? Do you desire to be among them? I can imagine when this list was published and it was read, there were people who listened intently. I see the name just as, it, as I look down and glance down, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Well, Elhanan had family, perhaps a wife and children, and they listened. I wonder if his name will be listed. Perhaps Elhanan was there to hear his name listed. It was meaningful to hear that name. By the way, all of us who know the Lord have our name written down. It's written in the book of life. And one day God will read our name from that book. We'll listen intently. So these names are important because they described David's mighty men. And we learned great lessons from them. They were called the 30. That's how David referred to them, the 30. My most trusted men, most valiant men, those who were the closest to David, who loved David and who sacrificed and who fought, not only for David but for the nation of Israel and ultimately for the Lord. And so we learned some lessons this morning concerning these mighty men, and I hope that you'll listen and that you'll pin these down as we look at each of them. And we're praying that God would speak to us by his spirit. The first thing we learn is we see the courage of a mighty man. The courage of a mighty man. There is a need for mighty men in this day and age in which we live. Because the battle is raging against the work of Christ and against his church. 
Satan knows that his time is short, and so he is endeavoring to attack on as many fronts as possible. And we, if we're going to be mighty men, mighty men and women who love God and serve God, we need courage. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. God's people need strength in these days. Strength. And the source of our strength is not found within. The source of our strength is the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of our strength is the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost who lives in each of his children. The source of our strength is found in the word of God upon which we stand. And so Paul exhorted them in the midst of the conflict to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And what do we find about these mighty men? We find they had courage. They were strong men. And they had the courage to stand alone. Oftentimes in this world, we feel outnumbered, those of us who know the Lord and love the Lord, those of us who take a stand for truth and for righteousness as we're living in a nation that seems to be coming apart at the seams where we can no longer identify the simplest things like who a man is or who a woman is. We've had no problem with that for thousands of years, but now all of a sudden, because we think we know more than God does, well, we've revealed how little we do know. And to take a stand requires courage. To take a stand against the evil, wicked tide of this world, it takes courage. And may God give us mighty men who are men of courage. Now, we see in these verses that there were some courageous men. First of all, Adano, we read about him here in our text in verse number 8 of 2 Samuel 23. The Bible says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adano the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. I don't know how he did it, but with his spear he killed 800 now we think about Samson who was empowered by the Spirit of God. We sort of get a visual image of Samson, don't we? This man with the flowing long hair and the muscular frame, and we can see him taking the jawbone of the donkey and killing a thousand Philistines. But we need to forget about the muscular frame because the secret of his strength was not found in himself. The secret of his strength was the indwelling power of God upon his life. It was the Holy Ghost. I imagine they looked at Samson and said, how in the world can he take on all these people and defeat them? The only explanation was God was with him. You see, the Lord has made us a promise. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God is with his people. He is the source of our strength. And Adano, trusting in God, took his spear and raised it against 800 and slew them. He had the courage to stand alone. Look in verse 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. 
Where's the army? They're going away. Just a few of us here. Look at verse 10. In that time, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave under the sword. Can you see him? Eleazar, outnumbered. The army's gone away. The men of Israel have gone away. What does Eleazar do? Does he go away also? No, he grabs hold of his sword and he, puts it, he, he clutches it in his hand. He clings to it and he begins to fight one after another. He begins to fight and wage war against the enemy. And when the battle is won and the victory is secured, he can't even, he can't even manage to separate his fingers from the sword. He's been clinging to the sword. By the way, do you know that you and I have a sword? What is our sword? It's the word of God. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 and verse 17 that in the midst of this spiritual uh, conflict that we're to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews states it this way in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is quick. That means it's alive. It is a life-giving force. A sword, we think about, often gives death and brings death. But the word of God is a sword that brings dead men to life. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, we have a sword. It is the Bible. It is the Word of God. And as we stand as one of God's mighty men, we hope, we understand that if we're to prevail, we must cling to the sword. This book the Bible is God's word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is life-giving truth that the world desperately needs. We need to cling to the sword. And there'll be no victory over the foe. There'll be no victory over the flood of immorality and wickedness, over the attacks of Satan against our minds and the frailty of our thinking. There'll be no victory unless we learn to grasp and hold tightly to the sword of the Spirit. You see, you cannot live a victorious Christian life and lay your Bible down Monday through Saturday. You just can't. You cannot have fellowship with the Lord and live in victory as you should. You cannot be used of God as he desires to use you. You cannot be fulfilled as a father, a mother, a child. You, you cannot avoid temptation unless you're holding to the sword. Unless you're reading the sword, unless you're filling your heart and mind with the truth of God's word. So may God help us to cling to this sword. Well, that's what Eleazar did. And that sword gave him courage. It gave him power. It gave him strength. And he wrought a great victory. Then we read of a man named Shammah in verse 11. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. This was a field of beans. 
They'd planted beans there. Why do you plant beans? You plant beans to eat them, right? There was a field of lentils. The crop was growing. The Philistines said, well, we'll just take their food. We'll just take what's theirs. We won't allow them to consume it. We won't allow them to benefit from it. We will take it. But there was a man named Shammah there. And while the Bible says in verse 11 that the people fled from the Philistines, verse 12, what did Shammah do? But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. He held his ground. You see, we've got to hold firmly to the sword, but we also have to stand our ground. We can't continue to give ground to the devil. We cannot allow Satan and this world to dictate to us things that we know are not true. We must stand boldly and courageously on the truths of God's word. We must take a stand. We must take a stand in our home, in what we allow to go on. What influences we allow there? We must take a stand for righteousness. We must take a stand for truth. And when they did take the stand, notice what happened in the close of verse 10. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Then again, look at verse 12, at the close of verse 12. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. When we are courageous and bold and take our stand, God gives victory. God gives victory. And so may God help us to learn to have the courage that is needed. Lesson number one, the courage of a mighty man. Lesson number two, the devotion of a mighty man. Look at it, if you would, please, in verse 15. Now, David and his men are under attack. The Philistines are coming against them. And they've put a garrison around Bethlehem, which was the hometown of David. In verse 15, the Bible says this, And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Here's David the shepherd boy. And uh, he, he's hearkening back to those days when he used to go by the gate and they'd drop his bucket down and draw some cold, refreshing water out of the well of Bethlehem. I imagine in his heart and mind there was no water so refreshing, so cold, uh, so clear and crisp as the water of the well of Bethlehem. And here he is now. He's in the cave of Adullam, and he said, man, I'd love to have a drink of that water. What was he doing? He was looking back. He was reflecting. He was waxing nostalgic. And he was longing for the day when the Philistines would be defeated and he could go and drink freely from that well. Well, when he made that statement, the Bible says in verse 16 that there were three mighty men who had been listening. They heard what David said. And because of their love for David, the Bible tells us in verse 16, they break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they took it and they brought it to David. They heard David make that statement. They looked at each other. They said, the king wants a drink of water. Let's go get it for him. 
And so they hazarded their lives. They didn't sneak around the Philistines. They broke through the line of the Philistines. That means there was conflict along the way. And they got to the well. They drew the water out of the well. I imagine they put it in a canteen of some, some form or fashion. And they brought it back to David and said, hey, king, you want a drink? We brought you one. Fresh from the well in Bethlehem. And David was overwhelmed. Now, we got to think about the kind of guys that David had in his army. Now, you remember after David slew Goliath and began to lead Saul's army, Saul got filled with rage and he, he turned against David and he sought to destroy David. In 1 Samuel 22, we learned that as David was on the run, there were a number of people who decided to join David. Saul was no king to them. He was a self-willed man. He, he, he led from the perspective of, of, of selfishness. In other words, he did what was good for him. He really didn't care about doing what was good for the people. And because of that, there was an oppressive kingdom under Saul. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 2, the Bible says that everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David, what kind of army you got? I'll tell you what kind of army I got. All the guys that are in debt, all the guys that are distressed and all the guys that are discontented. That sounds like my crowd. Does that sound like your crowd? They had no place in Saul's kingdom. By the way, we have no hope and no place in the kingdom of the devil, Satan, the God of this world. So we were resorted to another king, King Jesus. And in our distress, when the enemy was closing in on us and we were in despair and bound for an eternity in hell, in our distress, we called unto our king and he heard our cry. And in our debt, the debt of sin for which there was no payment. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Our debt that could not be paid was paid for by the king who came and stretched his arm out upon the cross of Calvary and allowed them to drive the spikes, the nails in his hands and feet and he hung upon the cross and he said, it is finished they buried him in a tomb, but on the third day, he rose again. And now he's ascended into heaven. My debt has been paid for. My discontentment has been swept away. Because I have peace. I have an inheritance. I have a God who has promised to supply all of my need according to to his riches in glory. He has gone to prepare a place for me. And with a king like that, how can we not be devoted to him? With a king like Jesus, how can we not love him? They heard him say, I wish I had a drink from the water of the well of Bethlehem. And they said, if that's what our king wants, we're going to do it. 
Oh, oh, think about it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. You see, when we begin to love God, when we begin to delight in him, we'll have no problem being devoted for him, or devoted to him, rather. No problem. And when he expresses his desire to us, then we will desire to obey him. Are you devoted to Jesus? Well, then how much do you obey him? Are you in his word? When's the last time you read it? I'm preaching this to myself, all right? When's the last time you told a lost sinner about Jesus? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You don't have to go across the world. You just need to go across the street. You see, there are people who think they have exemptions, you know. I, don't have, I know the Bible is the word of God. I'll admit that, they say. But, you know, I, that part doesn't apply to me. I, I, you don't understand my circumstances. I'm exempt from those things. I'm the exception. No, you're not. If you love the king, you're going to obey the king. May God help us to love him. The reason we don't obey him is because we're not devoted. You see, a mighty man is a man of courage, and a mighty man is a man of devotion. Well, David was so overwhelmed with that devotion as a, as a human king. He said, I can't accept this. These men have hazarded their lives. This water, this goes to the true king. And so he poured it out as an offering unto the Lord. So we see the devotion of a mighty man. Thirdly, we see the influence of a mighty man. The influence. Now we read about two fellows in verses 18 through 23, Abishai and Zeruiah. And what do we read about them? We read that these were men who were honorable. Look at verse 19. Speaking of Abishai, was he not most honorable of three? Then we see Benaiah in verse 23. He was more honorable than the 30. These were men who fought. They were courageous. They were bold. They were devoted to their king, and therefore they were worthy of recognition. They were honorable men, and may God help us as his children to be honorable. Men of integrity and, and, and women of integrity and of honor. May God help us to be honorable people. And because they were honorable, he exalted them to a position of leadership. To a position of leadership. In, in verse 19, speaking again of Abishai, was he not most honorable of the three? Therefore, he was their captain. He was made to be the captain. He had influence. He was a leader. 
Look in verse 23, speaking of Benaiah. He was more honorable than the 30, but he attained not to the first three, and David set him over his guard. So here we find Abishai is a captain, and we find that Benaiah is over the guard. These were people who exhibited and demonstrated leadership. By the way, you may be a quiet person, you say, I could never imagine getting up in front of a group of people and speaking. That doesn't necessarily define someone as a leader, that ability. Let me tell you what a leader is. A leader is someone who will do right. That's what a leader is. A leader is someone who will do right. You don't have to be verbal. You don't have to be too, too, too vocal and out and out and, and in the limelight. But what you have to do is you got to do the right thing if you're going to be a leader. And you got to lead by your example. And by the way, the best leaders are really good followers. Jesus called 12 men to change the world. And you know what he first told them to do? Follow me. Follow me. The Bible says that God has established leadership in the home, and he has, he has established the fact that the husband is to be the leader of the home. And do you know what the first requirement of good leadership is in the home? Submitting yourselves, Ephesians chapter 5, one to another in the fear of the Lord. A good leader in the home, a good husband who's going to lead his wife and family is submitted to the Lord and to his wife and family. He doesn't lead from a selfish perspective. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. That's the way Saul led his, his uh, nation. Saul led from a selfish perspective. David led from a submissive perspective, submitted to the will of God and to the people, what was best for the people. That's good leadership. And we need men and women who will exert and, 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 and provide an example of leadership in this hour. Now, we notice something else as we think about this. Look in verse 20. We're introduced to Benaiah. He is the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel. That word valiant has the idea of strength, but it also has the idea of influence. You see, here's what we find. Benaiah became one of the mighty men. He was over the guard. He, he did a lot of wonderful things. I mean, he killed two lion-like men of Moab. I, I don't know what those lion-like men guys look like, but I don't want to meet them, do you? He went down into a pit in the time of snow and slew a lion. How many of you have wrestled with those? I mean, this guy's a, he's a mighty man. He takes a staff, a shepherd's staff, and he goes down against a, a brave Egyptian with a spear, and he somehow with that staff plucks the spear out of the hand of the Egyptian and kills him with his own spear. I mean, this is quite a guy, Benaiah. But when we read these verses that, that, that he is the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kebzeel, we find out something about him. He was influenced by his father and his grandfather. I met with somebody this week. They, they, they're talking about enrolling their children in, in Tabernacle Christian School. I am so grateful for the opportunity God has given us to influence kids through the ministry of Tabernacle Christian School. Uh, we have invested, we have given, we've worked, we've sacrificed, and we will continue to do so. 
for the glory of God. But I said to this this parent, I said, I want you to understand that Tabernacle Christian School alone cannot direct your child in the way that they should go. The most powerful influence in the life of your child is not Tabernacle Christian School. It's a help, and I'm thanking God for it every day. But the most powerful influence is what's happening in the home. So if you just simply decide, I'm going to put them in a Christian school, I'm going to put them in a a WANA program or whatever kind of program you want to put them in and think that you can wash your hands of your responsibility, I got news for you. It isn't going to work because they're seeing what's happening at home. And what's happening at home is important. And because there was leadership, because there was honor, because there was an influence in the home of a man like Benaiah, God used him as a mighty man. And if we're going to have mighty men, we got to have godly fathers and godly mothers who will influence and teach their children the truth. Well, that leads us to a last point. And that is the faithfulness of a godly man, a mighty man, rather. In verses 24 through verse 38, 39, rather, we read the remaining names. I won't read them again. But I will read the last one. Kind of surprising to find him here, isn't it? Uriah the Hittite. Who was Uriah? Well, you remember he was married to Bathsheba. He, he had switched sides. He had become a believer in the true and the living God as a Hittite. He became a man who fought for Israel, who worshiped Jehovah God. He served as king, King David. Went to battle. While he was at battle, David was on the rooftop, and David looked down, and he saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And David desired to have her, and he called for her, and he committed adultery. Bathsheba sent word that she had conceived a child, and so David decided, I got to fix this problem the best way I can. He called Uriah home from the battle, and he sent Uriah to his house, hoping that Uriah would go home to Bathsheba and then later go back to battle and no one would know anything different. But Uriah didn't cooperate with David's plan. Of course, he was totally unaware of it. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 11, Uriah said this unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest and as thy soul liveth? I will not do this thing. Uriah said, how in the world can I go home to my wife while the men of Israel are fighting the battles of the Lord in the fields of the Philistines? I I don't imagine anything brought more conviction to David than that. 
And we think about Uriah, how he was sent back to the battle with a note in hand that was written by David that told Joab, put Uriah at the forefront of the battle, then draw back and make sure he dies in the battle. Because David then had to figure out a way to cover his sin. And that's exactly what happened. Now, we know that David did not successfully cover his sin, but we do know that he confessed it and God forgave him and put it away. And at the end of his life, when David publishes this list, he recognized the faithfulness of Uriah. And some would say, well, you know, Uriah really got played. What an unfortunate thing. And it was a dreadful thing that happened. But here's what we need to remember, that Uriah rendered his service unto the Lord. And though things didn't go well at the time for Uriah, ultimately we know where Uriah is. He's with God in heaven. This list is filled with men who were faithful. The Bible says, moreover, it is required in a man or in a steward rather that a man be found faithful. What can all of us do? We can all be faithful. Yes, there will be difficult circumstances. Yes, we will experience hurts and pains, but we can be faithful. And by the way, if there's no faithfulness, then the rewards are little. You remember what Paul said? He said, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, after this, after I'm beheaded for preaching the gospel, henceforth, after this life is over, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Do you know what God did? He fixed all the ills and injustices that happened to Uriah. He took care of all of it. He'll take care of them for you. Let's be faithful to the Lord. Let's honor him. May God help us to be mighty men, men of courage. May we hold our ground. May we cling to our sword. God help us to be devoted men, men who love the Lord, who desire to please him and honor him with our lives, who will be obedient to him. May God help us to be influential men, to teach our children the truths of God's word, to demonstrate honor, a life of honor and integrity and leadership. And may God help us to be faithful. We can all be faithful. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you will find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.